This is Resident 104.4 FM, flipping marvellous. How are you? Tis I, once more, Nicholas of Hennigan, coming at you with another slice of literary London, both on uh, Residence and, of course, now on BohemianBritain.com, uh, and also on YouTube, because if you're listening in stereo, you'll know we're in vision. Oh, yes, we are. We're in vision. Uh, and I'm very pleased, indeed, to welcome uh, another writer. We often talk to writers on Literary London, as you know. And uh, Elika Ansari has written a, a book, a kind of very topical book at the moment, called The Five Stages of Boria. Um, um, hello, Elika. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. It's taken ages to arrange this as well, because of me being a bit of an idiot. But... Um, at last you're here so tell us so well just tell us a bit about about the book because it's it's very topical at the moment isn't it yeah so the book is called the five stages of moria and the subtitle in quotation marks is the worst refugee camp on earth so moria for for those who may not have heard of it it's it was the largest refugee camp in europe in greece in an island called lesbos that burned down two years ago and I used to work there uh, 2018 till 2021. I was working in the camp and then out of the camp once it burned down. Um, so it's autobiographical fiction based on the stories that I came across uh, while I was there. I also have myself in there as a character. And have you have you been writing? We must talk about the camp, obviously, but have you been writing for long? Is this your first uh, your first book? It's my second, actually. The, the first one was published in 2019. Um, it was uh, it was a bit different. It was a middle grade uh, novel uh, about climate change, uh, but it was uh, like fantasy, getting kids to think about it through fantasy. So this is slightly different in that the age range, the age is different. It's probably, I would say, 16 plus. But I, I usually try to write around topics that I'm interested in, like social causes and stuff. <laughs> they do say yes yeah write about what you know um so what before we get onto the camp thing what, what's your sort of background were your, were your parents kind of politically aware or what, what tell us your story well I'm I'm originally from Iran I came to London when I was seven years old um and uh we my family we stayed uh not as a refugee I was a I was a migrant I was an immigrant and actually I start the preface of the book by saying, let me begin by confessing I am not a refugee. Um, so there are some, some parts of the journey are similar uh, with immigrants and refugees, but I acknowledge that for refugees, a lot of the journey is a lot tougher and a lot more difficult. Um, so I, we mo I moved here when I was seven, then we settled down in Spain a couple, uh, few years later. And then after I turned 18, I came back to the UK to go to university. And then I've sort of traveled and worked in different countries, the last one being Greece before coming back to London. Yes. Do you think, do you think your sort of background has given you a bit of a wanderlust? Did that, is that why you've sort of traveled a lot? I, I, I think so. Yeah, because I've been I've been traveling since the age of seven. Like, you know, well, you know, I wouldn't want to say against my will. It wasn't so much up to me at that age. But later on, it became sort of a way of life, you know. And then just last year, I decided, OK, that's enough living out of the suitcase for me and decided to settle down here in London. Also, um, I think working in the camp for this many. So I worked in Greece, not just in that camp. I had been working since 2017, so about five years in total. 
And uh, it came to a point where I've started to feel I, I don't feel as needed here anymore. Whereas if I had left, let's say, two years ago at the height of the crisis, where there were more than 20,000 people in the camp, I would have felt like um, I need to go back and do my bit. Um, so, I mean, and there were actually there were many instances on three instances I left. And actually, I thought I'm not going back because it's quite intense, you know, working in that context. And I thought I can't do this anymore. But something always kept dragging me back you know so about this time i think i've left for good for now <laughs> is it do you think you got that from your parents i mean were they sort of did they do similar sorts of work um i wouldn't i i wouldn't i mean my parents they've always been very philanthropic they've been very involved in social causes but work-wise no um they're more in the business sort of world um yeah, not in the humanitarian, but they've always been very, very interested in social causes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just interesting as well, you know, because my, it's, I, it's slightly with my family, because my mother ended up running a young uh, women's hostel in Birmingham, and my sister was a police cadet, and then my brother went into the ambulance. So anyway, just like, I just, I it struck me, and I was a social worker for a while, a residential social worker, and it just struck me how all, all of my siblings, kind of, there must, <laughs> that's why I'm asking you, there must be something in our background. I mean, dad was a factory worker, and mom was a housewife, so I'm not quite sure where it came from. But, and what, yeah. did you, what did you read at university? What did you study at university? So I, I studied international relations at first at, at St. Andrews, Oh. Um, and then I studied, um, there was a, like a master's, Erasmus Mundus master's, where you would go to three universities. I did something called Crossways in Cultural Narratives, which is very wordy, but it was pretty much like literature and philosophy. And the last thing, I, I also did a master's in Belgium in anthropology and development studies. And I think that really spurred my interest in working in organizations and like uh, you know, like I was working in uh, Doctors Without Borders in Greece, and it was very much a critique of uh, organization. So it was quite grim in that it got you to think about how international organizations were born after colonialism and what they took from that. So uh, it's it's a little bit grim, but it's really, really useful, I would say, if you work in the humanitarian field. Yeah, it sounds fascinating as well, actually, and, and well done. St Andrews is lovely. Isn't it? One of my plays went up there. How fickle am I? Yeah, one of my plays. I went up to see St Andrews University. It's a lovely, lovely part of the world. And so, it is. what what started you writing? I mean, did you always know that you wanted to write? I mean, yeah. I mean, I've always been interested. I was since I was like maybe nine years old, and we did like a writing project for English class. Um, at the time, uh, my brother, my older brother, was the only one who had a computer in the house, and he wouldn't let me use it very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my mom bought me a typewriter, and I remember I was I spent like a whole summer writing some murder mystery novels, um, really, really bad ones. <laughs> but you know, um, so I, I've always been interested in writing since I was since I was very young. And at uni, I I tried to look for like creative writing clubs and the, you know always had this um writing in the back of my mind always tried to um you know structure my my classes my work in order to have some time for writing as well um trying to hone the skill but at the same time i think um i didn't have much to write about at the time 
Whereas uh, with these experiences, it gave me sort of a wealth of ideas of what to write about. And do you think you had half an eye when you thought, I'm going to do these particular jobs because it will give me material for writing? I'm probably being incredibly fickle there. But was there something in the back of your mind thinking, if I do something extremely dramatic, uh, there's, a, there's a story in that? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, at the time, I, I didn't even like, because when when you're working there, you don't even have time to think about what you're doing because things are happening so, so fast and um, there's no time for reflection. At the time, I just wanted like, I would I would start like maybe here, then, you know, pressure would build up. I would reach like a, a tipping point and I'd be like, I don't want anything to do with this work or this clinic or this, you know, line of work. And I would go away. I don't want to, like, I didn't want to think about it anymore. So it didn't occur to me at the time uh, but later, when I did have some time, like a way to some time to reflect, then I, you know, that's when I started to think about it. I started to think like, because actually the title of the book, The Five Stages of Moria, the, the structure of it came to me when I started to put things into perspective. So it's it's modeled around the five stages of grief. And I started to think of Moria as this traumatic experience, drawing all these people together from all different walks of life, and um, and I was like, it it just it was it just clicked for me. Like I could immediately tell after having worked there for so long who just just arrived in the camp, so they were in an utter state of shock. Who had been there already for a few months? They were feeling guilty, depressed, they couldn't put up with life anymore. So it was only after I had spent some time away that that I got some time to think about it really, because there you just you just do, you know, you're just like running around, you know, doing this, doing that. You don't have time to think. And and how did you say were you working in Greece anyway? Just, how did you actually get involved in in the in the camp? Um I went so before Greece I was working in Belgium. And I was um, so, you know, following on from my, I'd, uh, I'd finished my international relations. I was doing my master's in development studies. And while I was doing my thesis, I, I got a traineeship in the, um, it's called the European External Action Service, which sort of functions as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the European Commission. And I was in the branch that dealt with Afghanistan and Pakistan. And at the same time, I was still also, I was, I'd started volunteering with Afghan refugees in Brussels. And I think working there sort of uh, made me realize I don't really want to, <laughs> to work there because it's very, it's very policy level. And it's very much about wearing suits, talking, and then not much getting done, basically, as is a lot of politics. Yeah. Um, so I, when I, while I was volunteering at the same time, I was seeing like, you know, people have very, very basic needs. And here we are, you know, talking about the use of one word in a policy document. So it didn't, it didn't really speak to me that, that line of work. And at the same time, um, the EU-Turkey deal was signed while I was working there. And that's when the policy of containment came into place, whereas uh, a lot of people were getting stuck on the islands. Um, in Greece, and they would end up staying in camps like Moria for many, many months, whereas these camps are constructed to be transitory. So it was because of the policy of containment. So there was a new crisis emerging. 
And um, I just, it felt like I, I wanted to go there and help because I, I speak Farsi. A lot of the refugees were from Afghanistan. So Dari, Farsi, very similar. Some of them from Iran. So I could speak the language. So I, I was looking for opportunities to go there. And I found one in 2017. I think it was spring. And I initially went to Athens to work for the Danish Refugee Council. Wow, what a great story. And um, we must talk, have you, I, did I drop you? I'm not sure if I've dropped this on you. Have you got a little bit of the book you could read for us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so well, what we'll do, I'll just give you a sec anyway. So um, yeah. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is uh, Residence 104.4 FM. We're also on uh, bohemianbritain.com. I'm talking to Elika Ansari about her book, The Five Stages of Moira. Moria, I'll get it right one of these days. Um uh, so we're going to hear, in fact, should we do that now? Let's hear a little bit from, from your book, if that's okay. Sure. So I've got a passage that I have in mind. So this is, um, so the five stages Moria, we have five characters. And one of them, it's my favorite character. It's a little girl. Her name is Ferishta. And she's, she's Afghan. She's based on a girl that I knew, uh, who basically risked her life to save her little brother from a fire. So this is one of the first fires that we had in Moria. Unfortunately, we have many because it's not very well, it was not a very well built camp. Uh, so this is not the final one that, that destroyed the camp. So I'm gonna read from Ferishta's chapter. The camp is burning. I don't know how it happened. All I know is that everyone is crying and screaming and running like mad people, especially the adults. My head hurts. The moment I smelled the smoke, I ran out of our caravan. I'm in the middle of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Where is mommy? I can hear her screaming my name. Ferishta, Ferishta. She seems lost. Ferishta means angel in Dari. Mommy says my birth was a gift from heaven, so that is why she named me Ferishta. Ferishta, where are you? She cries out over, uh, she cries out for me over the crowd. I can see her now. She looks so sad when she's worried. She's been sad ever since we arrived in Moria and I don't know what to do to help her. Sometimes when she thinks me and my brother are asleep, she sobs quietly to herself. She thinks I don't hear her, but I do. I know she feels lonely sometimes. I was still very small when Baba passed away. May God rest his soul. Mommy has had to raise us without much proper support. At least back in Herat, she had my aunties and grandpa and grandma to help out sometimes. But when bad people attacked the, the village, we had no choice but to leave. Here, we have no family to help us. So she cries sometimes and I hear her. I want to tell her not to worry. I want to tell her that she's not alone, that I'm with her. I want to tell her I'm not a little girl anymore. I'm grown up and I can pull my weight too. Ferishta, I'm here, mommy. It's okay. I'm safe. I yell back, but she can't hear me. She just keeps turning on her heels in circles, stretching up on her tiptoes, trying to see over the crowds. I spot Kaka Abulfaz as she finds him, as he finds her. He's also shaking, but calms down when he sees she's okay. Then he says something which seems to relax her a bit too. He must have told her I'd made it out and not to worry. He's so nice, Kaka Abulfaz. Sometimes, when mommy's too busy to go to the food line, he shares some of his own food with us. He does act a bit young when he's with his friends, but when it comes to us and mommy, he's so caring and mature. Mohsen really likes him too, because he can 
and just sits and play with him for hours. I wish Kaka Belfaz was my father and he would always stay to help mommy and play with Mosan. Mosan is my little brother. He's five, but mommy still treats him like a baby. When I was five, I was already helping mommy clean the house and wash her clothes. Once, when mommy was nursing Mohsen back to sleep after one of his usual nightmares about the bad men who attacked our village, I asked her who she loved more, me or Mohsen. She waved me away casually. Don't ask silly questions, Fereshta, I'm not in the mood. Now she calls Mohsen's name. That's when I notice he's not there with mommy. It's strange not to see him by mommy's side. They're usually inseparable. Even when I want to hold mommy's hand, he always gets to her first. And I get angry at him sometimes. But mommy tuts and says I'm older, so I should be patient. Selfish, thoughtless Mohsen. It's just like him to go missing at such a moment and worry mommy. She's beginning to panic. I can see it in her shaking body. And to be honest, so am I. He may be annoying sometimes, but he's still my little brother. Where are you, Mohsen? I stop to look around and see no sign of him. He's usually so loud that you can't help but notice him, even over hundreds of screaming people. My heart stops beating when I remember the last place I saw him, in our caravan. We go to sleep at the same time, but he always falls asleep before me, and I watch him as he does, just to make sure he's breathing okay. What if he's still in there? The flames are getting bigger now, and I can see them approaching our caravan. I see mommy looking in the same direction. Then as re realization dawns on her, she starts pushing and shoving people out of her way like a mad woman. People hold her back. It's too dangerous, they say. He'll be gone by the time you get there, they say. You'll kill yourself. Mommy is frantic. I never, I've never seen her like this. We're all she has, Mohsen and I, and I can't let her lose him like she lost Baba. So I brace myself and dash through the gaps between the crowds and back up the slope before anyone can stop me. I dive into the smoke. There's too much commotion. I feel like I'm in a haze. In seconds, my throat and nostrils are in pain. My eyes begin to tear and smoke enters my lungs. I pull the hem of my shirt up to cover my nostrils, but I've already breathed in too much of it. So it's not long before my body begins to crunch. I'm coughing in fits. I hold my breath and enter our caravan through its unhinged door. Beyond the thick smoke, I spot him doubled over in the corner, poor little Mohsen. He's crying so hard, but stops for a moment and when he spots me. Hang on, little brother, I'm coming for you. Wow, <laughs> blimey, that's fairly dramatic. Does he get out? No, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anymore. <laughs> that's brilliant. I mean, I, 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 we must talk about the, because uh, uh, we're, we're talking about the book, The Five Stages of, of, of Moria. Moria is a real camp. Um, We'll talk about the process of how you've got a publishing deal as well, or whether you're self-publishing and, and what you think about all that. But I haven't actually seen the book. It's such a confession. I haven't seen the book yet. Uh, that's my fault for not being all over the place, for not being in the right place. But just, I, I must ask you, because at the moment in, in, you know, as you know, in, in the UK, we've got a lot of listeners and, and viewers. Oh, you can watch us, by the way, on YouTube. Oh, yeah, we're in vision. Oh, yes, we are. You'll know that if you're listening in stereo. Yes, we're on YouTube and we're also on bohemianbritain.com in uh, glorious Technicolor. But we've got a lot of people uh, who follow this very kindly uh, from all over the world, including actually, a, we've got someone in uh, Iran. 
who keeps emailing anyway uh, you, you won't know her. Really? <laughs> yeah right. but, but so just tell us and there's a lot of political rhetoric being spouted at the moment about it's the old i mean i won't get too political about it but the old thing about immigrants and you know coming over here and they're just economic migrants and they're just after a better life and i, I was listening to the news today and I, I say i won't get too political about it but you've been there tell us at first hand who these people are and why they're there these people nick could be anyone it could be you it could be me we had musicians we had television hosts we had lawyers doctors we had builders we had working class middle class upper class when they got to moria all of that was gone because moria was a huge equalizer in that people had to start from scratch they were there because, and this is this is a huge point to stress, nobody would leave their country unless they saw no other way of making a living for themselves and their family. Nobody would put their kids, their wives, their friends, themselves on a boat, you know, on a rubber dinghy that could sink at any moment. Nobody would go through that trauma. Nobody would put up with a place like Moria unless they had no other choice. And this is, you know, we, we talk about economic migrants. These are just words, basically. I mean, sometimes poverty is much more violent than war. It can be much more violent than war. Sometimes poverty leads to war. Sometimes war, well, war always leads to poverty. I mean, these are just words that we use to sort of classify migrants and refugees into different, you know, put different labels on them and decides to, you know, extend help to, to certain groups and to withhold it from others. Um, one of the biggest groups of refugees that we have in Britain are Iranians. Look at what's happening in Iran right now. Uh, there is um, much like, you know, we should, we did uh, extend support to Ukrainian refugees that in the same manner, we should have been, we should do the same to all other refugees, you know, finding safe routes for them to come here, finding sponsorship schemes to, you know, put them up somewhere safe. It should not go to a specific category of refugees. That's discriminatory. And without sort of putting you on the spot, because I know you're in the, the caring side of it, what do you say to people who say, well, hang on, these the people that are coming over the channel now have come from a safe country, so, somewhere like France or, 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 you know, anywhere else in Europe? So why do they need to come to the UK specifically? What, how would you answer that criticism, if it is? I mean, there's always there's always a reason. I mean, the, the, the same was said in Greece, that Turkey is a safe country. But there's always, there's always things we don't see. I mean, there were so many claims of people getting shot at while trying to, and not, not aiming to kill, just scaring them. I mean, these are anecdotal. Uh, unfortunately, there's no... Um, hard evidence because nobody would own up to it but uh, Turkey was certainly not a safe country for lo lots of immigrants there were like people like reports of them getting sent back to their countries asylum systems in different countries uh, although we all well we all are not Britain anymore but the EU abides by the EU asylum laws even in Belgium uh, the rate of acceptance for asylum applications was hugely vastly different between when, uh, when the Dutch authorities assess the claim and when the French authorities assess the claim. So if we're all following the same 
same asylum laws and procedures, then why, how can we account for such a huge difference? Um, there are many reasons why people cross the channel. They might, they may have family here. They may have uh, other, uh, you know, there might be other opportunities here. There may be thousands of reasons. Um, I don't think we can account for uh, the Dublin, also the Dublin regulation, which very unfairly states that certain countries need to be the, responsible for all the asylum claims that come through. And that puts pressure on countries like Italy and Greece, um, which themselves are struggling economically. I think uh, there's a lot of things to be reassessed here. And, and it's just finding a way to sort of uh, take away responsibility from countries like the UK because they're harder to reach, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, I mean, again, it's, it's such a massive thing. And I, thank you for that because it is interesting. But let's let, talk about, look at the time, blimey. Let's talk a little bit about what's what's the nitty gritty, the real people. You work there day in, day out. I mean, does it start, is it an early morning start? Are people happy? Are they, it was interesting you were saying you could tell when someone had just arrived. Because they were, they were well. Just tell us what the what's the day to day life like in in a refugee camp. It's it's very complicated because um, so one thing that I would say uh, it depends on the population, the numbers that are there at a given time. At a time where we had twenty thousand people in a camp that's built for a maximum three to four thousand, um, it was all about lining up you know, cues for this, for that, for doctor, for uh, for legal support, for the, you know, and spending hours in the line. So basically people would uh, think about, schedule their day in terms of which lines they should be standing in uh, throughout the day. They would um, divide up their uh, resources, like, you know, father goes to this line, mother goes to this line, you know. Um, it's very, very hectic. Uh, people are often um, quite disappointed on the edge, rightly so. They don't know who to take their frustrations out on, especially if they've been there for a while. They seem to be getting nowhere initially. Maybe they're a bit more motivated, but after months and months of uncertainty, not knowing uh, when it's going to come to an end, um, they're just frustrated overall. And whoever they go to for support, um, especially NGOs, because, uh, of course, what we can do is limited. We're non-governmental. We function within the remits of the, the governments and the, the national laws. Uh, whoever they go to to take out their frustrations, we say, this is not on us. This is nothing to do with us. This is the government. So there's really nobody there who can answer to their frustrations, basically. Um, it's, it's really, I would say it's really difficult. It's a long uh, waiting process. And there's some of that in the book is reflected in the book that the waiting basically is the worst part, I think, for a lot of people, because if they were given a date, you know, on this date, you will be out of here. They could deal with that. But it's the not knowing. It's the like, maybe, you know, maybe I'm stuck here forever. Who knows? You know, I mean, the um, that's the worst part. Yeah, and sorry. the fact you, sorry, no, sorry to interrupt. I'm just worried about the time all of a sudden. We could talk for hours, actually. But um, I mean, I, I guess the fact that you've chosen to write this book means you must you must be, is it fair to say you're very fond of most of the people that you met in the camp? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not only fond of them, I look up to them. They're an inspiration. Um, the 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 resilience that I saw in them, some of the children there, 
I mean, it's a kind of resilience that other people can only dream of. Um, it's it's basically having gone through it all by the age of eight. Um, it's it's quite it's um, disheartening, but at the same time, it's very very inspiring. Um, you know, to see these uh, children grow up and then go on to make a life for themselves after all, after all they've been through. Yeah, I, I think it's important, isn't it, that we took these are people, these aren't just statistics. And uh, I, in a small way, I, I, there's one or two people that I remember from when I was a social worker years ago, still in touch with them. It's great to see that they've got on. Um, you've got the book out. Uh, where can we find out more about you and where can we buy the book, where, for instance, if we want to do that? Um, well, I'm I'm on social media, Elikan, sorry, everywhere. Um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, the book is available on Amazon. It's available on the, the publisher's website. The publisher is called Artbound. Um, it's also available. It should be available in on most, most book uh, bookshop websites. Also in store in London, it should be available in don't uh in Marylebone soon it should be available in waterstones piccadilly um all good books yeah all the, good bookshops but the, so the best way to find out more about you is then alika ansari on yeah. social media and um, we've got to wrap up <laughs> it's so long to get to meet you eventually i'm so delighted that that we have done uh, but thank you so much for uh for coming in well for coming in coming on as it were it's one of the one of the glories of the new technology we're doing this online um alika ansari the five stages of moria uh, is available now um thank you again for your time and we've run out of it so that's it. I shall see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan and on BohemianBritain.com, we're also, of course, uh, Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>